Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Taryn Winterbrill, host of Best Seller TV on C-Suite Radio. On this show, I sit down with leading business authors to find out what makes their books stand out from the crowd. With thousands of new business books and titles being published each year, we try to make it just a little bit easier for you to decide which ones are worth the read. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to Bestseller TV. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. We're here with Richard Marker. He's the author of Saying Yes Wisely, Insights for the Thoughtful Philanthropist. It's great to have you with us. It's great to be here, Taryn. I was so excited to get this book because we really haven't touched upon this subject on the show very much. You know, a whole book dedicated to the art of philanthropy. So what got you into philanthropy and what's your background? Okay. Well, I've had five careers. So if you had asked me when I uh, finished graduate school, was I going to end my career in this area? I would have not imagined it in a million years. One thing led to another. Uh, but uh, most immediately, I was heading a big foundation, a big corporate uh, slash family foundation that closed 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so that was professionally what got me into it. But when that closed, uh, when the company was sold and therefore the corporate foundation closed, uh, I realized that there was a real gap. Uh, nobody taught me how to do this stuff. And when you talk to people in the field, everybody said, oh, well, one foundation is, you met one foundation, you met one foundation. There was nothing that said that there should be standards and there should be ways of, of, of doing this well and their best practices. And I said, there's something wrong with that picture. Uh, that, uh, you know, we're responsible for billions of dollars a year. We're responsible for public policies. We're responsible for an entire sector and there's no barrier to entry. Mm. And so 15, 16 years ago, I uh, decided it was important to to help uh, develop the field educationally. And it also, um, uh, along the way, found myself responding to questions, writing op-ed pieces, uh, writing pieces along the way to help elucidate what uh, other people who are giving money away should know. So that's what got me into from being a professional, uh, as a a funder, as a foundation executive, to somebody who helps other philanthropists and foundation professionals do it better. And I should say, you're now a professor. You, you teach on the subject at right. my alma mater at University of Pennsylvania. That's right. Did it for about 15 years at NYU. And now the Penn Center for High Impact Philanthropy has started a philanthropy education program. The, our programs teach funders. It's, uh, there are undergraduate courses and graduate courses in the field, but the programs that I'm involved in are ones where people from around the world who are philanthropists themselves or people who work for foundations will come for a week at a time uh, to learn what best practices are, mm-hmm. to learn what uh, the core competencies are, to learn what the ethics are, to learn what the laws are, to learn how to make good, responsible decisions uh, and to be able to take it back and do it well so that the field itself is enhanced by it. I must say that while we have a very thriving 
driving business advising funders, there's no comparison with the numbers of people that you could ever advise with when you're uh, with the number of people that you teach. Mm. And so the personal database that I have, having taught this now for 15, 16, 17 years, is much larger than you could ever have with any kind of personal uh, advisory practice. Um, and yes, and so teaching makes me a better funder and uh, hopefully uh, allows me to teach people better. So who would be a great uh, person to read this for someone involved in a foundation or is this for anyone watching who wants to give, has never really, okay. or doesn't know how to say yes wisely? Uh, so sort of at what level of philanthropy do you, do you write? The chapter that most people make reference to is the chapter that says how to be a philanthropist on $5 a week. Great. Uh, because uh, all of us, especially in the United States, and I know later on we're going to talk more about international things, but uh, but in the United States, all of us are asked to give. Everybody, everybody that you ever meet is asked, whether and now whether it's on an email or whether it's on letters or whether it's phone calls that come to interrupt dinner. Uh, there's always somebody asking for money. Almost everybody that you'll ever meet gives some money to charity. It could be in the church. It mm -hmm. could be walking down the street and giving money to a beggar. It can be a United Way that they give to at their place of employment. It could be some other kind of gift. So all of us are asked to give. And, and but a lot of times people say, well, Jesus, I don't have enough money to be a, a philanthropist. I just have a little bit of money. When I was heading the foundation I was heading, uh, and the and the the family heading that foundation uh, were billionaires many times over. Mm -hmm. And I got a call one day from a, a, a prominent Hollywood. Uh, person uh, who said, listen, do you, would you mind giving me some time? And I said, sure. He said, well, you know, I don't really have that much money, uh, but I want to make some good decisions. I said, well, you know, just so I can get a sense what you're talking about, how much you're talking about. He says, I only have a couple hundred million dollars. <laughs> right. Now, you know, people, when you, people compare themselves to somebody else, but the truth is that somebody who has $5 a week uh, strategically spent can make a difference in a school. They can make a difference with a youth group. They can make a difference with a, with a hunger program. So it's not a matter of how much money you have. And the chapters in this book are, are really targeted to all levels of people in the field. There's some chapters that Great. clearly only make sense to people who have a lot of money and people that are making uh, thoughtful decisions with the staff and, and have the ability to impact an entire field. And there's other chapters that can apply no matter how much money you have. Mm -hmm. So it's really across the board. Part of the title, you say, it, it may be hard to say no graciously, but even harder to say yes wisely, which is an interesting concept. How do you say yes wisely? Okay. Are you saying that you can say yes and that's not, you know, what you said okay. yes to isn't the wisest okay. decision? So here, here's the thing. Um, first of all, we, without realizing it, most of us say no much more than we say yes. Mm. So without realizing it, we say no all the time. When Every time we don't open a, car, a, a solicitation, we're saying no. True. Every time we hang up for somebody who calls us to interrupt our dinner, we're saying no. We say no all the time. Um, the more money you have, the more people ask you for money, right? You walk into a room when you, when you're known as a philanthropist or you're known as setting a foundation, you are a walking dollar sign. Every room that you walk into is, is, is a place where somebody wants something from you. Right. The question is, how do you determine when it's appropriate to say yes? Do you do it on a social basis? Maybe that's appropriate for you. You say, well, no, I want to be in this community. I want to be known as somebody who gives the things. That may be an appropriate way for you to give 
if you thought about it. Saying yes wisely means that you've thought about why you're giving and why it's a priority for you. If you don't have that set of priorities, you may be very charitable and you may be a wonderful person, but you're not likely to have the impact with your philanthropic giving that you could have if you have a strategy behind it. But that strategy shouldn't be based on somebody else's objective measure. Mm. Uh, you know, you may live in a small community. And that community might have a theater group. Uh, it may not be a, a, a New York uh, Broadway-style theater group, but you may say, I want my community to have a theater group. Well, if you use the standard that it has to be world-class, you may never support your own community. But if your priority is that uh, the community where you live, you want to make sure has a variety of cultural offerings, that may be a perfectly wonderful thing for you to say yes to. The challenge is to think about it ahead of time, to have a strategy that reflects what it is that you want to accomplish with your own resources and make sure that it aligns properly with the amount of money that you have to give, the amount of time that you have to give, and what you want to, and the impact that you want to accomplish with your giving. Right. C-Suite Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard, something I really enjoyed, which I wasn't expecting, you devote a section of the book to uh, what distinguishes American philanthropy versus other countries. And that insight was very interesting. So okay. tell everybody a little bit about sure. that. Sure. Okay. So I've had the privilege of, of speaking in 39 countries and five continents. And while that sounds like a lot and it sounds like I'm bragging, the relevance to your question is when the answer to the is not simply an academic answer. It's also based on an understanding of various laws and cultures and how philanthropy plays out in, in different places around the world. Now, it's important, and this I'll, I'll give a couple of sentences of a quasi-academic answer to it to put in perspective. In the 18th century, when, uh, when Europe and the United States were entering a, what we would call the modern period, there were different visions of how a society is put together. Most of the world followed the Napoleonic concept, which said that the, the, the society itself is responsible to its citizens. Mm -hmm. And that's why in much of the world you have healthcare and you have retirement and you have free education and you have all these kinds of things that, uh, that, that are the responsibility of the government to its citizens. In the United States, it, it was built much more on individual uh, choices. Right. And therefore, there was the, the rights of the citizens, but not the responsibility to the citizens. Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, the American system was put on the assumption, especially early on, and perhaps now that we're in this era, the question is on the table once again. But the, the assumption was that if we want to provide services to our citizens, like a college education, you have to pay for it. And therefore, from the very beginning, going back to the 18th uh, century, philanthropy filled an institutional need that wasn't the case in another place. If you want health care in the 18th century and 19th century, it was because a religious group or a national uh, origin group got together to, to 
have a hospital or to have an orphanage or to have educational institutions or to, to create opportunities for people who are uh, immigrants to be able to be acculturated. So the, the system in America is not that we're more philanthropic than other places, but the institutions arose because there was nobody else taking care of them. That's one of the big differences between most other industrialized societies and America. So to stop you right there, does that mean that we as Americans, we feel the need to give more than other countries do? Because uh, okay. it's not provided so, for So it, it plays a different role. It is, there's no society that I've ever seen anywhere in the world that does not have a philanthropic history. Okay. Okay. We have a tendency in America to somehow romanticize that we're the most generous or the most charitable group in the world. That's not true. It just looks different the way it plays itself out. Uh, and, and partially, as I said, because with most of the institutions that provide service to our, uh, to our citizens would not have existed had it not been for philanthropy, voluntary philanthropy. Uh, but in fact, there is is no society, even in Scandinavia, mm -hmm. which is which is a part of the world where you would think, gee, was why does philanthropy have to exist? Because the societies provide for everything. Right. In fact, there's a history of philanthropy there. And we've taught in, in Scandinavia and we have to teach differently and we have to respond to different cultural norms, right. but there's still philanthropy there. But it's the it's the the reason it looks different in America is because the central institutions that provide human services and educational services and healthcare all trace themselves back to volunteerism, voluntary giving in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century. Things changed in the United States starting the, the middle of the 20th century after the, the New Deal and so forth when we began to provide social security and we began to provide public education for more and more people. So the balance is different. Mm -hmm. But yes, it's it's that long history of the, of the absolute necessity of private giving uh, that didn't exist in the other places. So you're absolutely right to, to uh, talk about the difference between uh, how we do it versus much of the rest of the world. Richard, I want to thank you. The book is so unique. It's like nothing I've ever read, and I've read a lot of books <laughs> as host of the show. Um, but you know, you talk about the marker method, which I won't give away. Very interesting. Something called philanthroethics. You also talk about philanthropy's response, excuse me, to the financial crisis, which was a whole uh, unique insight into it, a whole other way of looking at it. So I just want to say thank you. And I Good. just found the book to be just very unique. Pleasure. And um, Well, let's do it again. <laughs> My pleasure to be here. Thanks for being here. And if you'd like more information on the book, just head to our website. It's csweetbookclub.com. That's c-sweetbookclub.com. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Bestseller TV. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.